The Old Testament reading for this, the third Sunday after the Epiphany, which serves as the text for our sermon this morning, comes from the book of Nehemiah, the eighth chapter. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, all nations. For great is his steadfast love toward us. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The epistle reading comes from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, the twelfth chapter. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consider of one member, but does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, 
all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And this is the word of the Lord. And the Holy Gospel comes to us according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A, B, C, D, E, F, E, F, E, F, Hutton. When we have Hutton talks, people listen. Do you remember that commercial? Well, according to the internet, it's now vintage, which is a polite way of saying that it's old, but some people still like it. And there was a whole series of them, but the end was always the same. There was some scenario like a busy restaurant or a classroom, somewhere with lots of stuff going on. But when the name E.F. Hutton was mentioned, everybody dropped whatever they were doing and leaned in to make sure that they could hear every bit of the sage financial wisdom that they thought was going to follow. Yes, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. But what about when God talks? 
I suppose the internet might call God's word vintage as well, because most people think of it as something old and outdated, but acknowledge that there are still a few people who like it. Does God command the same kind of attention and respect that E.F. Hutton once got? Does his word make everyone stop what they're doing, lean in closer, and try to hear every last syllable? Or does God's word elicit a different kind of response from people? Well, actually, that's the wrong question. I mean, it's very easy for us to sit here and condemn the world for not listening, for rejecting God's word, and then feel nice and smug as we pat ourselves on the back for not being one of them. But should we really be doing that? Instead of pointing fingers at the world for not listening to God's word, let's talk about you and me. We know what the world's reaction is, but what is our reaction? We hear God's word, and we what? Now, we'd like to say that when we hear God's word, we set aside whatever else we are doing. We reverently bow our heads and listen in rapturous joy to the word of the Lord. We'd like to say that because we know that that's what we're supposed to say, and we don't want anyone to think any less of us. And so we pretend. But let's be real. That doesn't always happen, even for me. It would be great if it did, and it is the response that God's word deserves, but it's not what happens, because we are sinners, every one of us. And so our natural inclination is not to reverently hear God's word and adore it and give him praise for deigning to grant it to us. Our natural inclination is to rail against God's word because it offends us. Look at the response to God's word in the gospel reading today. The people of Nazareth are gathered around at the synagogue, and Jesus himself is teaching them. Can you imagine a Bible study led by Jesus? He could answer every question, could clarify every word of scripture, because he is the source, the subject, and the author of the entire Bible. It would be an amazing experience, and honestly, it's one thing that I am really looking forward to about heaven, hearing the word of the Lord from the Lord, clarified to us. But the people of Nazareth, they're not all that impressed. Sure, at first they like what Jesus is saying. They're marveling over his words, they're speaking well of him, they're like, yeah, that's our boy, he's from Nazareth, and he's made it big time. But then they consider what he's actually saying. And it doesn't set well. Jesus proclaims himself to be the Messiah. And the people take offense to that. Isn't this just Joseph's son? The boy we all knew when he was growing up? I mean, who does he think he is being all high and mighty, calling himself the Messiah? I don't think I like what he has to say anymore. They're offended. Especially when he begins to speak directly against them and convict them of their sin and unbelief. He says, Surely you're going to quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself, claiming that you're no better than any one of us. And he says, A prophet has no honor in, in his hometown. And he points out times from the past when God sent a prophet not to the people that knew him but to people far away. And the people of Nazareth didn't like that. 
They wanted to be the special ones. They wanted to have special favor with God. They wanted Jesus to say, everything's good. God loves you no matter what you do. It's right. And that's not what Jesus was giving them. And so when they hear the word of God, the people of Nazareth react. Not in reverence and respect, but with disdain, with hatred, with murder even. The crowd rises up and drives him out of the synagogue to stop his dreadful teaching. They're not happy with just that. They take him to the highest cliff in town with the intention of throwing him off and killing him. Jesus, we don't like what you're saying, and so we are going to stop you. We are going to get rid of you. We are going to kill you so we don't have to hear your hurtful words anymore. And that's a pretty extreme response. And we'd like to tell ourselves that we would never have done such a thing. But it's actually pretty much exactly what we do sometimes. As sinners, we hear God's word, and we too want to silence it. Because the word of God tells us that we are doing wrong, and that there are consequences for our sin. In so many different parts of our lives, we hate God's word. Because it goes against what we want to do. God tells us what is good and bad, what is right and wrong, but we ignore what he says, and we choose to do whatever we want to do anyway. God warns us of the disastrous consequences of our sin, but we pretend nothing's wrong, that all those problems that our sin sin causes, those are God's fault, not ours. And we blame him despite the fact that he is trying to keep us from that pain and sorrow. We try to justify ourselves in so many different ways. Well, everyone else is doing it, and the government and society say it's okay now, and I like to do it, and my situation is different from everybody else's, and my heart and plenty other parts of my body say I want to do it, so I'm going to do it no matter what you say, God. God says that divorce is a sin. And that it's bad for us and those around us. But we claim it's our right. That it makes things better despite the fact that it clearly tears families and children and the whole country to pieces. But that's all obviously God's fault. God warns us about sexual sin. Telling us that sex is a gift for a man and a woman who are united in one flesh in marriage. And that outside of that bond, not only is it sinful, but also causes deep emotional scars and lifelong pain. But we don't want to hear that. And so we see sex as some game, no strings attached, recreational activity that we can do at any time with anyone or anything. And despite the fact that we see so many lives and relationships shattered by sex, despite the fact that we see firsthand how destructive it can be, we ignore God's word, we accuse him of being some old fuddy-duddy who's just trying to keep us from having fun. Because clearly, all the pain that we've caused and caused to ourselves and others, that's God's fault. God tells us that murder is a sin, and that life is precious and begins in the womb. But we want the convenience of abortion on demand. And so we claim that children are just clumps of cells, that it's my body, my choice, even though the science is clearly against that. That abortion is a constitutional right and is necessary for women to not be oppressed or something. 
all the while also lamenting the fact that there aren't enough young people in the country to properly support Social Security. God tells us clearly that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him, that there is no other way to eternal life besides the cross and empty tomb of Jesus, and that Jesus is a free gift given to all. But we don't want to hear that. And so we pretend that all religions are the same, that it doesn't matter what you believe because we're all going to wind up in heaven anyway. And if God insists on pushing the point that it is faith in Jesus Christ alone that gives us eternal life, we accuse him of being closed-minded, of excluding so many people, even though he is excluding nobody at all, they are excluding themselves. But we ignore God's clear word. We ignore all the obvious facts. We accuse God of being hateful. We tell him that we know how things really should be. And then we try to twist his infallible word around to fit our faulty, sinful reasoning. I could go on with examples all day long. In so many ways, when we hear the word of God, we respond like the people of Nazareth. We take offense We ignore the clear facts, and we claim that it's God's fault, not ours. We even go so far as to try to drive him out of our lives, even try to kill him by pretending that he didn't actually say those things, he doesn't really care, and even if he does exist, he's not going to dare say things that would offend us like that. Let's face it. As sinners, we hear God's word, and we don't want to listen, don't want to change, don't want God to speak anymore. Because his word runs contrary to our sinful lives. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we like our sin. And so left to our own devices, we hear God's word and we rail against it and do everything we can to twist it and silence it. And yet, in his unfathomable love and grace, Jesus doesn't leave us to our own devices. Because he knows that those devices and sins lead only to eternal death and hell. Despite our childish accusations against God, despite our intentional blindness to the disastrous consequences of the sin we like to do, God continues to speak to us. And by his word, he broke our stony, rebellious hearts. He gave us faith and he made us a new creation. Our old sinful nature was drowned in the waters of baptism, even though it keeps rising to the surface again and again and again to cause us more grief and pain. Our hearts and our minds and our entire beings were changed by God's holy word, which has power beyond all comprehension. Our dreadful sin that we love so much, it was washed away from us. It was laid upon Jesus Christ, and it was nailed to the cross with him. God didn't stop speaking his word just because we didn't want to hear it. Instead, he used that very word to change us, to give us faith, to open our eyes to the truth that the world and our own sinful nature don't want us to see. By faith, and by faith alone, we hear God's word and we rejoice. In our gospel reading today, The people hear the word of God and they want to kill Jesus. But in our Old Testament reading, 
we see a far greater response. These are the Jews who have been held in Babylonian captivity, who have finally been allowed to come back to Jerusalem after being conquered and removed from their homeland. They are allowed to rebuild their city and the temple. They are allowed to worship God and hear his word freely once more. For 70 years, they could not gather together like this. But now they do. They gather together, men, women, children, anyone who can understand and hear, to hear the word of the Lord, to have it preached to them by the scribes, who explain it to them, who clarify, who tell them what that word means to them. From early morning until midday, Ezra reads the Bible, and he and the priests help the people understand it. And in response, the people rejoice. Some of them weep, to be sure, convicted of their sin, realizing just how wretched they truly are. But God's word doesn't just proclaim his law, doesn't just tell us how wrong we are, doesn't just say, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. God's word proclaims his gospel, his steadfast love, his forgiveness through the blood of the Messiah. Do not be grieved, says Ezra, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the people stand in rapt attention, hearing God's word, hungering for more, celebrating that God has set them free, has given them salvation and mercy and forgiveness, has given them the free and completely undeserved gift of everlasting life, just as he does to all. This, we pray, would be our response as well. That we hear God's word in faith, recognize it for the gift it is, and rejoice. Because God's word, even when it convicts us of our sin and tells us that we are doing wrong, it is a powerful blessing to each and every one of us. God warns us about sin, not to keep us from these wonderful things that everyone else enjoys, but to keep us from the things that the world says are wonderful, but are actually wretched traps that cause pain and suffering and sadness and death. God is our loving Heavenly Father, and He does not want to see us get hurt, does not want us to suffer needlessly, and so He warns us to avoid sin, tells us what is pleasing to Him and what is best in our lives. And the greatest part is, even when we don't listen, even when we ignore God's warnings and run headlong into some sinful pile of filth and pain, God's word proclaims we are forgiven. No matter how wretched our sin, no matter how long we have sinned, no matter how many others have completely written us off as lost causes, God forgives us completely. 100% as if it had never happened. When we repent of our sin and we turn in faith to God, faith that he himself gives us through his word, we are fully forgiven. Even if we don't keep our promise to never do it again, we are forgiven. Now there still may well be some earthly consequences for our sin, And some of those consequences may last for the rest of our lives. Faith in Jesus is not a magic wand that makes everything perfect. But by God's grace, we know that those consequences are no longer eternal. No matter how deep our sin, 
Jesus Christ has paid the price in full so that we can be proclaimed holy, innocent, and righteous as we stand before his judgment throne on the last day. Jesus shed his innocent blood for you. Jesus laid down his perfect and eternal life as the only acceptable sacrifice on your behalf. He died so that you could live, not just here on earth, but forever in heaven. And he rose again from the grave to give you absolute assurance that his word is true. He has power over death that he displayed that Easter morning as he rolled back the tomb, the stone from the tomb, so all could see he had risen as he said. He keeps every one of his promises, and he promises you that by grace, through faith, forgiveness, life, and salvation are yours, given to you as a free and undeserved gift with nothing else that you have to earn or do. This is what God's word proclaims constantly to each and every one of us, to every single sinner who has ever lived. This is why we hear God's word and we pray that we would hear that word in faith, recognizing what a phenomenal blessing it truly is. We hear God's word and our sinful nature wants to silence it. But the new nature given to us by Christ through his word and sacraments, it knows better. And so by the grace of God, we hear God's word and we rejoice. We sing God's praise and we share the good news of Jesus Christ with all because all people need to hear of his free gift of heaven. We hear God's word and we weep with joy because that word assures us that despite our sin, through the cross of Jesus Christ alone, through his empty tomb alone, you are forgiven of every one of your sins, and eternal life in heaven is yours. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen.